All right, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9, we'll start there in verse 18. Talking today about authority, let's uh, stand for the reading of God's Word together. Genesis chapter 9, verse 18, these are the words of God. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was scattered abroad. Then Noah began to be a man of the land and planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. Then Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took the garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned backward so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Then Noah awoke from his wine and he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. And he said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Let's pray. Our Father and living God, help us to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. The bulk of our time this morning will be spent on the ham incident in Noah's tent. I'm sure you re read that this week and were uh, somewhat perplexed. It is one of those interesting passages. Theologians and writers have speculated a great deal about what exactly took place. We don't have a lot of details other than something happened, so we have to draw some conclusions. Uh, certainly before we draw any conclusions, there are certain questions that arise. Why would Noah become inebriated like this? Uh, did he not know that having too much wine might render one intoxicated? Is that what we're supposed to think? Better yet, was Noah actually in a sinful, drunken stupor? Like an Irishman who left the pub in Dublin after celebrating his soccer team's victory with several rounds of Irish whiskey. Was that a problem? Is it, in fact, is it a sin? Furthermore, does the Bible anywhere condemn Noah's actions? Can you look anywhere in the Bible and find the Bible saying what Noah did was sinful? And what exactly was Ham doing there, and why is it significant that Shem and Japheth, that's Noah's two other sons, they walked backwards into the tent with the garment on their shoulders? Why is that significant, or is that just something you do? Was this a case of sexual sin? And where was Noah's wife? That's a question I have. What was she doing? Was she involved at all in this? Now, I'm convinced that so many interpreters of the Bible impose a moralistic approach to the passage rather than beginning with a biblical theological one that considers the larger themes that help us connect the dots with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So you can't just read this story in isolation and throw whatever glasses you want onto it. You need to read it in context. 
For example, let me, let me share, you, share with you a perspective. One popular dispensational commentary calls Noah a pagan. Listen to what they say. Intoxication and sexual looseness are hallmarks of pagans, and both are traced back to this event in Noah's life. Man had not changed at all. With the opportunity to start a new creation, Noah acted like a pagan. End quote. That's a popular commentary that's out there. And they're basically saying Noah drank too much, there was some looseness uh, and lack of self-control, and he acted like a pagan. So essentially, Noah is dubbed an unbeliever and not a covenantally faithful man. But is this true? Is that the conclusion we're supposed to draw? Even the great reformer John Calvin, as much as I love Calvin and read Calvin frequently, he criticizes Noah's allegedly sinful imbibing. Um, teetotalers, for example, they love this passage, and thus they will fabricate a fence around God's law, functioning more like a Pharisee than biblically faithful Christians. Quaffing ale, no way, they said, that's the devil's juice. And that thus becomes a hallmark of Baptist theology, too, especially as you consider the history of, uh, of America and the teetotaling, um, the... the uh, issue of moonshine and all of that great st stuff in our history. But they would essentially say, see, Noah's a great example. Don't ever drink alcohol, ever. Now, the fact remains, the Bible says that wine gladdens the heart, Psalm 104, verse 15. In Judges 9, 13, we know that it makes God and men glad. Joseph and his brothers feasted and drank freely together in Genesis 43, verse 34. Jesus himself created what can only be assumed to be the greatest wine known to man. John chapter 2, verse 10. A significant miracle, uh, his first miracle. Wine is a symbol of the consummate kingdom, of Sabbath rest, of Holy Spirit-infused peace, comfort, and joy. It is the drink of kings and rulers, a drink of of choice after making proper judgment, after doing battle, after a fruitful day of work. Think of mowing the lawn on a Saturday, on a hot Saturday in July here in Virginia, and what does a nice refreshing drink do to you? Ah, my work is done, I may enjoy it. That is the context here today. In other words, you could say it this way, it's a symbol, wine is a symbol of governorship and completion. It's actually the very thing associated with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As we saw earlier in Genesis, Adam and Eve prematurely seized authority by partaking of the tree of knowledge before it was time. They were to eventually partake, but they weren't ready. They hadn't matured in their growth and maturation with God. They, uh, they had not learned holiness and obedience. They had not yet learned hard work and trust in God. They hadn't been tested in this regard, and they had not partaken of the tree of life, which is what they were supposed to do first. They wanted authority on their own terms before it was time. And this same problem will befall a young ham. Let's look at our text here and work our way through. Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. In verse 18, we're reminded that Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's three sons, they came out of the ark. So we're to connect what happens after with what happened before. They came out of the ark. And immediately we are told 
that Ham was the father of Canaan. Now that is an interesting thing to say because we don't even know about Canaan yet. We have no context other than, and why Ham? Why not the rest of the family? Well, we meet the rest of the family in the next chapter. But here, Canaan is highlighted for a specific reason, which we'll see shortly. So we're in verse 19, from these men, the earth became populated. So the scene is set. Noah, we're told in verse 20, is a man of the land, and thus he planted a vineyard. And that's what you do when you're a man of the land. You plant things, and a vineyard is a healthy, kingdom-oriented sign. Godly men are masters of the soil because they are from the soil, and they have been called to work the soil. And guess what? Eventually, they return to the soil. So Adam was to plant a garden like God. Remember, Adam was there to watch God plant the Garden of Eden, and he was supposed to do that in the rest of the world. He was supposed to mimic God. But Adam, we know, didn't, and he had to to leave the garden. But now Noah does the work. Noah is the one who is taking what Adam left behind and building it now. Noah's development of viniculture is to be viewed in conjunction with his name. Noah's name means rest. It means rest, and he brought Sabbath rest to the world in following Yahweh's commands. Building a church ark, preaching to the heathens, and rescuing the animal world, this was Noah's day job. That was his task. That was his day job. Cultivating a vineyard is what he did afterwards, and drinking from it is how he enjoys the fruit of his labors. Man is to work and keep the world under the authority of God. That is the lesson from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's the same lesson here in Genesis 9. And from there, from in keep, working and keeping the world and doing it under, as a subordinate under the authority of, of God, from there he is to enjoy the fruit of his labor. Remember back in chapter 5 what Lamech said about Noah. And he said this in chapter 5, verse 29. This one will give us rest from our work and from the pain of our hands arising from the ground which Yahweh has cursed. So we have a prophecy about Noah coming along. Noah is going to give rest, which is a good thing because that's what his name means. Noah's work would bring rest, and indeed it did. Humanity entered not into the permanent Sabbath that Christ brings, but they did enter into a new Sabbath, a different Sabbath. Sabbath is connected to enthronement. Sabbath is enthronement. It is ascension to lordship, a proverbial putting one's feet up after victory, that sort of thing. Um, And we see also Adam in the garden was priestly. He was to become a king. He was to learn how to become a king. And now Noah is, in fact, kingly. Noah's actions are the actions of a king. The priests in the temple, in the tabernacle, you may recall, they were never allowed to drink the wine. And the reason they couldn't drink the wine that was in the tabernacle and in the temple was because their work was never finished. It was never done. That's emphasized in the book of Hebrews. However, in Christ, we can now drink the wine in celebratory fashion because Jesus' priestly work is done forever. The work of Christ is finished. It's over. He has no more work to do in terms of atoning for sin. So why do we come to the table and drink wine? Because it's done. It's finished. He is the Melchizedekian king. His work is finished. And we drink as priests and kings in him. And we celebrate. And we do that every Lord's Day together. 
And the bread comes first, the bread being a symbol of work and toil, and then the wine comes afterwards. So it's fitting that Jesus tells us to partake of the bread and then the wine, which, of course, was part of the Passover meal. Now, in verse 21 here, we find that Noah drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. Now, whenever reading the Bible, we have to make sure we are not anachronistically reading our understanding of words and definitions from today and putting them upon the text. That's a huge temptation. We think we see words mean something here, and then we read it here, and we assume what we think today on the text. That happens in a lot of places in the Bible, but surely that happens here. The Hebrew here can mean drunkenness in a sinful sense, but the range of meaning includes simply drinking to the point of peaceful, restful slumber. It doesn't have to mean Noah was so out of his mind that he was slurring his speech and you know, couldn't find his tent and they had to help him along. That's not, that's not what's going on here. The Bible says nothing about Noah sinning with alcohol. Anywhere. You can't find it. Go ahead and keep looking. You'll not find it. It says nothing about Noah sinning with alcohol. The sin that is focused in the text is actually Ham's sin, as we'll see. Ham was the one who sinned, not Noah. So we need to be careful not to impose upon the text that which is not there. As a king under the king of kings, Noah simply drank the wine and he did drink quite a bit of it. <laughs> he felt warm and cozy, and he enjoyed a nap in his tent. And a tent is a place of privacy and rest. So rather than Noah sinning, I would argue Noah was being a faithful king. And it's important to note that when the text says that he was uncovered, it's a reference to his robe garment. In other places, it, these robes, they symbolize rule and authority. And I believe that's the case here. The robe symbolizes rule and authority. And it may have been a warm day. Uh, he was out working. It was a warm day. Perhaps the afternoon sun was upon him. So he retreats to the privacy of his tent. And he sleeps without clothes. Presumably, again, it, it probably was a hot day. So he takes off his robe garment, symbolizing authority, and puts it down. Uh, James Jordan notes this. He said, Noah has not withdrawn from the vineyard. He has planted it, and he has entered into Sabbath rest. The sons are alone in the vineyard. Note that. He's in his tent. Where are the sons? They're alone in the vineyard. And that's, this is, Jordan continues, this is directly parallel to Genesis 2, where Yahweh, God, planted the garden, entered into Sabbath rest, and withdrew, leaving Adam and Eve alone. Do you remember the connection there? Adam and Eve were alone in the garden. God withdrew to enjoy Sabbath rest. And they sinned, and Yahweh, God, comes walking. And where are you, Adam? And that whole thing takes place. So that's the issue here with some of the symbols that connect us to the, to the Genesis story in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In verse 22 here, we are told that Ham saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Question, you should immediately ask, why was Ham in the tent of his father? He had his own tent with his own family. Why was he there in that tent? Was he there to simply wake him up and inadvertently stumbled upon his nakedness? Dad, it's time to get up. Oh, no. And he leaves. 
Is that all we're supposed to see here? Was it simply a wellness check? Sort of a no-knock raid. Coming in, like it or not. Now, based on the latter, this is where interpreting the Bible can get tricky, because you have to remember what, ha what comes after that may give us an indication of what came before. So usually it's best to keep reading. But based on the latter part of the verse here, I think we know why Ham was there. He was there to seize the robe. In other words, he was there to seize authority to try and become king now. Now, perhaps he stormed into the tent to kill his father. Some of this is conjecture, but it's contextual conjecture. And I think that that is the situation we have right now. I think Ham went in because he knew his father had had too much. He knew his father was sleeping. Perhaps he could take the kingdom from his father. And the reason we can come to this conclusion is based on what the brothers did in response to Ham's moment of conspiracy. In verse 23, what did the brothers do? They took the garment robe and put it on their shoulders. Why the shoulders? Well, we'll talk about that in a second. They walked backwards into the tent. So um, Shem and Japheth have it on their shoulders like this, probably holding it like this and walking backwards to cover their father. And they laid it on their father. They covered his nakedness. And they did not want to seize the authority like Ham. They were more mature than him. This is, this is the fall and demise of Ham, and specifically the curse that comes on his son, Canaan. Now, the main issue here was Ham's response to his father's nakedness. What, what, was, what was his response when he went into the tent? Well, we're supposed to hear echoes of Adam and Eve's realization of nakedness and their need to be clothed by God. And it wasn't, a simple, it wasn't as simple as accidentally seeing something he shouldn't have, which is what most people, most commentators will say that. Well, he saw something he shouldn't have, and maybe he pointed and laughed and ha-ha and mocked him, and then he left and said, hey guys, look, you won't believe what I just saw. Ha-ha-ha, uh, look at this. That's where most people go with the text, and I don't think that's really the, the answer because Ham, Ham could have just covered his father or even just left and not said anything to anyone if that was the case. He didn't have to go and broadcast it, start tweeting about it. But the garment was there. He saw the garment. He saw it. And I believe, I'm convinced, Ham had an idea. He already may have had an idea going into the tent, which brought him there. But then he saw the garment and said, hmm, this is an opportunity. Um, what does... Well, he had an idea, and then the, the other trouble is he went to his brothers to conspire, and I think that's what he told them. Um, Dad's garment's just sitting there, the robe of authority. He is passed out, um, enjoying his Sabbath rest. I think we can take him. Now is the time. And the brothers, of course, don't, they don't want to get involved with this sort of shenanigans. So what does this mean? I think Ham wanted mutiny and insurrection. That's what evil people want. They want mutiny and insurrection. He was staging a coup. His, uh, his was indeed a revolt, but it was primarily a, a revolt against maturity, to borrow Rushduni's phrase from his book. His father was resting in a basically a very vulnerable spot. 
Surely now was the time to take things into his own hands, to exploit his weakness, to make a mockery of his father, to take control of the kingdom, to take control of the vineyard, to be the man in charge. In verse 24, Noah awoke from his, his, his wine and he knew what his youngest had done to him. How did he know? Did his wife explain what happened? Did she see it all happen? Or did he remember that his robe garment was put over there on the chair, but somehow he woke up and it was on him? I think that's probably what happened. I think he knew enough to know, I'm, it's hot, I'm going to enjoy a rest, take a nap. I've had some drink, I'm going to put my robe here, it's, it's a warm day, I'm going to lay down. I think he w- woke up and knew that. He could... Noah was a wise judge, too, so he could probably, by Yahweh's help, by the grace of God, could discern the circumstances. But either way, he knew what Ham was up to. You know, maybe his wife said something, maybe the other boys said something. But he cursed Ham's son. Note that. He cursed his son and not Ham directly. And the key phrase here is in verse 35. Sorry, 25. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. Why did he curse his grandson like that? Why did Noah curse his grandson? Well, Ham wanted authority. Ham wanted authority, so Ham's son will be a slave of all slaves. The authority will be farthest from him. Canaan will be a servant to the brothers. The first shall be last. That is Jesus' language, and I think that's exactly what's happening here. Ham wasn't the seed of the woman, but the seed of the serpent. Like the devil's temptation to Adam and Eve, Ham wanted to seize authority without maturity. That's the devil's sin in the garden. He wanted Adam and Eve to take of the tree, to seize authority for themselves, to judge like God judges, which was supposed to happen once they matured and grew into it. But he tempted them into it, and that's exactly what happened here with Ham. Rather than being mature and patiently waiting to uh, receive authority from his father in due time, Ham essentially sacrificed his family line and his son was cursed as a result. It was a fatal error in judgment. The opposite of the judgment we're supposed to exercise. It was a fatal error in judgment. Sinning brings us low like the serpent. So Noah cursed his grandson and said, you're going to be the servant of all your brothers. In verse 27, Japheth, the oldest son, is blessed, and then so is Shem. Putting the robe of authority back on Noah was symbolic of their rejection of Ham's scheming, which gave them a blessing and not a curse. So covenant was the priority for them. They believed in the covenant. They believed in Yahweh's faithfulness to the covenant. And they were, in a, in mature, in a mature way, acting maturely, wanted to uphold the terms and conditions of the covenant. So when they put it on their shoulder, the priests would wear certain things on their shoulders. There's significance in the book of Exodus and elsewhere for the shoulder. There's a lot there we can't get into enough time, but that's partly the symbolic nature of why they carried it from their shoulder. They were servants serving in the inner sanctuary, covering Noah and affirming God. Now, we're told at the end there, chapter 9, verses 28 through 29, Noah lived another 350 years after the flood. 
So he lived for a total of 950 years. Now flip to Genesis 10 real quick. I'm not going to say a whole lot about this passage. You, you can read it later, but Genesis 10, we see the generations that come after Noah's sons. And we don't, again, have time to do a deep dive other than look at verses 8, 9, and 10. In verses 8, 9, and 10, we have somebody show up, and that name was Nimrod. Nimrod was Ham's grandson, and his name means something like rebel. And we're told here in these verses that he was a mighty man. He was a hunter of men, though. He was not a good man. He was a hunter of men, a murderous man. He was an evil warrior before the face of Yahweh. And he built Babel and the surrounding cities of man. We're going to come to that next week when we close out in here in chapter 11. But that's, that's who Nimrod is. And so we see the descendants of Noah. We already see the curse being fulfilled. In Ham's line, Nimrod becomes like the evil Lamech back in, in earlier parts of Genesis. So Canaan, in verse 6, was the youngest, which is the age when humankind is prone to want authority without responsibility. Parents, that's what we try to teach our children, right? You have a lot of uh, responsibility coming your way, and you want authority. Well, you have to be mature, <laughs> You can't just have the responsibility. You can't have the fruit of the vineyard without working and laboring. That's a constant theme that we've had in our home is we work first and then we play. You work first and then you rest. Work happens, rest. And then when we come to Jesus, we think about the fact that actually we rest first and then we work. Um, but I wouldn't uh, mess with that too much. Kids, you still have your work to do at home. So part of the genealogy here in this text is to get us to Babel and then get us to Abram. And we'll, again, next week we'll deal with that. But just note once again, man reproduces. And once again, there is an antithesis between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that antithesis is between the trees of God and the thorns of men. Nations are built by men. If you look at the end there in verses 31 and 32. They built nations. They built cultures. But the question that leaves us hanging is, well, how will they look? What, what will the culture... Culture is inevitable because culture comes from religion, but what will be built as a result of that, we'll see more next week. So, how shall we then live in light of this text? In the descriptions of the tabernacle and temple, we learn that there's a screen that's put in front of the holy place and the holy of holies. It's there to cardin off God's mercy seat from man. God takes that very seriously. Remember when Jesus dies, the curtain is torn. That curtain was there for a very specific reason, and that is to section off sinful man from Yahweh's presence. Because inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God was. And Yahweh dealt with his people in this fashion. But the screen was there as a boundary marker, just like the flaming sword in the Garden of Eden. It's a boundary marker. Sinners cannot and may not approach His holiness. Man has sinned too much and God is far too holy. This relationship has terms and conditions. You don't just waltz in. In Esther 4, verse 11, we also find that the inner chamber of the king was never to be disturbed. If you were a king, in your inner chamber, nobody is allowed to just go in. And that's what makes the Esther story quite interesting. But entering into the holy place is considered an uncovering. 
It's considered an uncovering, a nakedness, a high-handed pollution. At best, it's a lack of respect. At best, Ham's situation was just a lack of respect for his father. But at worst, it's stiff-necked treason to just go in. Uh, and the, priest, the high priest could only go in to that special place once a year for the Day of Atonement. But you don't just go in. You die if you go in. God kills you right there. And God could have done that with Ham, but he was gracious and did not. So at best, it's just disrespectful, but at worst, it's stiff-necked treason. In both Exodus 26 and Numbers 4, the priests, the priests of, of Israel, they were responsible for setting up and tearing down the movable tabernacle. They were responsible in the temple, the later temple, for the services and the worship and things that were going on there. But they had a special procedure for assembling the temple, or the tabernacle rather, and then disassembling it because, remember, they were sort of like traveling along and they had a process for it. And the process was there so that no one would look upon the Ark of the Covenant. That is God's mobile throne room. You're not permitted to just see it. You're not permitted to just touch it. Because, as we know from another text, you touch it, you die. For Ham to look upon Noah's nakedness, which was inside the privacy of the tent, was to bring forth defilement. It was an unholy exposure later illustrated in the tabernacle. Leviticus 15, for example, we find that the private parts of a man, and the woman for that matter, is a symbolic place of life and of death, which is what circumcision pointed to. Furthermore, Noah's tent was a prefiguring of the tabernacle because Noah was God's man. Noah was a priest, but he was also a king. Noah was to be a lord and a king under God. And so his tent was a special tent. It was a prefiguration of the tabernacle. Noah's Sabbath resting in the tent was respectable. Indeed, it was admirable. He had done a great thing by building the ark and saving the world while God was bringing destruction. Noah was a godly man. He wasn't this sinner that people make him out to be, though he needed the grace of God, no doubt. But my point is, is that he was endowed with God's grace in such a way that he fulfilled what God had said for him to do. So Noah was a good man. He was a kingdom man. He was robed in authority. And he was situated as a servant of the Most High. And he enjoyed the fruit of his labor, which is what Ecclesiastes 2.24 tells us to do. You are supposed to enjoy the fruit of your labor. We've lost that in our fast food society. It's just, let me shovel this down real quick because i got other things to do. And we don't stop to think, God, thank you that I can have this food. And I didn't even hardly have to do anything to get it. We should enjoy the fruit of our labor, but we should do it with thanksgiving in our hearts, with gratitude, with humility. But Ham is a man like Cain, driven by envy and usurpation. He is a young man, a man with strong desire. But unlike David, who could have eliminated Saul on several occasions, but chose not to for fear of taking matters into his own hands and thus disobeying Yahweh, Ham decided to seize authority to take it by force. The very thing Jesus warns us against. Jesus says not to do that. Discontented with simply working in the vineyard, Ham wanted to possess the vineyard as his own. He was an immature man, lacked responsibility, lacked self-control. He couldn't, he couldn't keep his checkbook in order. He kept overdrafting at the bank. 
He was a very irresponsible man. He wanted authority. He wanted power, but he wanted it on his own terms. He didn't just work in the vineyard. He wanted it. Whatever Noah had, he wanted. And it's good, children, to want what your parents have, but you have to work for it. It takes time, patience, maturation, growth. In the Bible, the robe is a symbol of authority. I mentioned that earlier. Here's a few verses for you to consider. Job 29.14 reads this. Job 29.14 I clothed myself with righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Interesting. In Isaiah 6.1 It's on the front of your bulletin, by the way. The prophet saw the pre-incarnate Christ sitting on the throne with the train of his robe, what? Filling the temple. And that's signifying his unending authority. Christ has unending authority. He had it before he became a man, and he certainly has it after. But his robe, that authority, filled the temple. That's how much power and authority he has. Later on in Isaiah 61, verse 10, Isaiah 61, verse 10 says this, I will rejoice greatly in Yahweh. My soul will rejoice in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Remember what the soldiers did with Jesus when mocking him in Matthew 27. They put a scarlet robe on him in mockery, which was a fake coronation ceremony, by the way. They put the thorns on his head, gave him a robe, gave him a stick, a scepter. Oh, bowing down, hail, hail to the... That was their mockery of his ascension to being king and lord. They mocked him. But we know who Jesus was, and we know that he was, in fact, the king of the Jews. At any rate, to have a robe of righteousness is to have a robe of justice, a robe of authority, a robe of power. As Rushdoony points out, God is man's author and authority. Ultimately, ultimate authority rests solely with the triune God. God is the unchallengeable king of all things. So when man questions God's authority, he chooses the path of death. If you question the, the authority of God in your life and in your family, you have now, you have now chosen death. Rush Dooney writes this, he says, Life only exists on God's terms, not in terms of man's imagination. All of life is in terms of of God's authority, not your own imagination. If men are to have authority, they are to have it in terms of God's law, which requires stewardship, it requires maturity, it requires self-control. And Isaiah 3.12 tells us it's a curse to have infants as rulers. So look at what we have today. When the hardest question our president gets is, what's your favorite ice cream? He's an infant, and he's a ruler, and we are judged. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to expound upon it for just a moment. Adam and Eve were supposed to eat of the tree of life first, and then partake of the tree of knowledge. They were called to maturity first. To partake of the tree of life was to say, God, my life is in your hands. To try to partake of the tree of knowledge was to say, my life is in my hands. So they were called to maturity first. The tree of knowledge, again, wasn't bad. But what was bad was eating before one is ready. And Adam and Eve were supposed to be co-belligerents with God against the serpent. But what did they do? They chose the side of the serpent. 
So if they exercised patience and self-control, they would be rewarded accordingly. They would move from priesthood to kingship. But they wanted kingship first, just like Ham. And that's why it's so disturbing in politics today, because you have people run for office and they, oh, they're a good guy. They'll never be tempted to, to compromise, right? These pro-life politicians who won't listen to us and our, our bill that's consistent with Scripture, um, they won't listen at all. And it's because they have other people with power lining their pockets, other people with power. They're compromised. They want the authority of being a representative or a governor. They want that authority, but they're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. They won't simply stand on the truth of God's word. And that's, what's, that's the chokehold we have around our nation right now. But this problem isn't altogether unfamiliar uh, to the Bible. I mentioned David a moment ago. Remember, David refused to touch the Lord's anointed. He was already anointed king, but Saul's the king right now, and God was taking it away from him. And David could have killed Saul several times, but didn't. He did not want the authority and power on his own terms and conditions. Remember Peter in the garden of Gethsemane with the sword when he cut off Malchus's ear and Jesus heals it. What did Jesus say to him? Jesus said, all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. If the sword is your opportunity to exercise your power and authority over other people, you will die that way. You will die that way. Saul, again, same, same situation with him. Nimrod, the manslayer, was no different. Same wicked man. And what about the mother of James and John? Remember when they petitioned Jesus to make sure her sons sit at the left and right hand of Christ in his kingdom? They wanted power. They wanted authority. Over and over and over again, Jesus warned, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Authority is based on service. It's based on self-sacrifice. Authority comes to those who aren't looking for it, but are instead preoccupied by sacrificial living. Let me say that again. Authority comes to those who aren't looking for it, but are preoccupied instead by sacrificial living. Do you want to lead? Do you want to be powerful? Do you want to have authority? Then be willing to serve everybody around you, no matter the cost, no matter the price. Men want authority and power, and in and of itself, this isn't a problem. It is a desire that is good and right, but man in man indeed is supposed to have authority and power. However, sinful men always want it on their terms. And they're willing to do whatever to get it. Politicians, they want more power the Constitution does not afford. Husbands, talking to you men today, husbands want more power. And if they're not careful, they will ruin the family by becoming a tyrant. It's like this irony where you say, I command your respect Ladies, are you going to respect that? <laughs> I command your respect. Same thing with parenting. You are, children, supposed to honor your father and mother, and you are supposed to respect them, and you are supposed to be eager to do your responsibilities. <laughs> but parents, we can't demand that. We're shepherding hearts. We're not lining up the rank and file and yelling at them like we're at boot camp, like that's going to be the thing that changes them. Even women are prone to desire to rule over their husbands. I'm sure none of you are here. That takes on many different forms. 
But men are born for authority and power, but this is an ethical issue. One must first be a slave of all. And if you are in Christ, you too have a robe of righteousness, a robe of authority. You have it. You've been clothed with his righteousness. You have, by the power of spirit, been washed clean by the waters of baptism. And in that baptism, you have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. You have it. It's yours. Additionally, you are seated at the king's table for dinner. In Christ, you have been justified. You have been sanctified. You have been given everything you need for life and godliness, for doctrine and devotion. And now it's up to you to exercise that authority in the world. Christ has given his life as a ransom for you. How will you live? How will you live in humble sacrifice? Serving him before you serve yourself. Serving others before you serve yourself. Or will you seek the praise of men? I think that's what half these politicians want. And if we're honest, I think all of us want that. We want to be praised. We desire for people to praise us. And so we're willing to lie to them, to gossip. We're willing to backstab. We're willing to do all these things so that people will praise us in its utter folly. Or, instead of that, will you pour yourself out as a drink offering? Or will you merely consume? All of this biblical imagery is there to teach us about approaching God. How do we approach God? We dare not assume with arrogant presumptuousness that we can stroll right into the throne room of God acting as though we have a right to be there. Not so. We come to Christ only because he came to us. We love because he first loved us. We can be servants because Christ served us. We enter into the Holy of Holies in the heavenly sanctuary by faith because Christ, the priest king, has invited us to be there. We don't insist with pride. We come empty-handed and undeserving. It was his blood, his sacrifice, his humility, his service, his self-control, his self-discipline, his pleasing of God and not men, his grace, his mercy, his unselfish work that has brought us near in the gospel and in that, friends, we rejoice. Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth and we gladly follow the warrior king into the world, marching triumphantly with the victory that he has secured. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we glorify you today. We have gathered this Lord's Day to worship your Son who has given us so much. And we realize that we are utterly undeserving. We have no right to presume upon your grace. We have no right to assume that we are allowed to hold on to pet sins and hold on to these things while still claiming to worship you. No, we know that we must be stripped bare of our own false righteousness in order to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you come near to us, that you apply the benefits of Christ through baptism in the supper. We thank you that each day, Holy Spirit, you drive us back to the word that you inspired so that we know how to live faithfully unto you. And I pray for our children here today for our husbands and wives, for our families, for our children especially, that they would learn maturity, that they would learn growth and sanctification and not be so quick to want authority and power, but instead be quick to be a servant of all. And we know that your covenant is full of promises. Your covenant has all sorts of promises and we claim those and we ask for you to help us to remember them. And may you remember them too. 
Not that you're forgetful, but we ask by your grace that you would bestow upon us mercy upon mercy. We give you the praise today in Christ's name. Amen.